In this weekend's episode, three segments from this past week's Washington Journal. First, Zeev Sanderson of New York University's Center for Social Media and Politics discusses the use of artificial intelligence and the impact it could have on the 2024 election. Then, Hudson Institute's Michael Duran and Benjamin Friedman of Defense Priorities discuss the latest in the Israel-Hamas war, role of Iran's proxy forces, and concerns about a wider conflict in the Mideast. Plus, the Wall Street Journal's Richard Rubin discusses congressional efforts to pass a package of tax breaks that would impact businesses and parents. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, this is Rachel from C-SPAN's podcast team. And I'm Sean, a C-SPAN producer, and we'd like to tell you about Word for Word, our evening newsletter that I write each day. If you follow politics and policy, we think you'll also like reading word for word. Think of it as your evening briefing on Washington's most important stories delivered straight to your inbox. Find out what happened on Capitol Hill, the White House, and see video highlights. Join our informed community. Subscribe to Word for Word today at cspan.org slash connect. Go deeper on the day's important stories. Subscribe now to Word for Word at cspan.org slash connect. Thank you. But next, a deep fake robocall during this past week's New Hampshire primary election is renewing fears about the role artificial intelligence could play in the upcoming campaign. We talked about it with Zeev Sanderson of NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. So in talking about uh, artificial intelligence deep fakes, can you first explain what that is? Yeah, so... Pretty simply, a deepfake is the manipulation or fabrication of an image, audio recording, or video through automated means with the intended effect of making something sort of appear to happen that didn't actually happen. And deepfakes have been discussed as potential threats in the last two major election cycles in 2020 and 2022. So I just want to quickly explain why this moment is different. We've long had technologies to manipulate sort of content in different mediums. Viewers at home know that Hollywood movies have been doing this for many, many years, but it's expensive and time consuming. It took trained specialists with expensive software um, and, and required many, many hours. Now with AI, we have this different moment where the technology to create deep fakes um, has sort of been democratized, if you will. It's lowered the cost and increased the access. Well, let's uh, take a look. Um, This was a fake robocall of what sounded like President Biden uh, calling New Hampshire voters ahead of the uh, the primary, telling them not to vote. Take a look. What a bunch of malarkey. We know the value of voting Democratic when our votes count. It's important that you save your vote for the November election. We'll need your help in electing Democrats up and down the ticket. Voting this Tuesday only enables the Republicans in their quest to elect Donald Trump again. Your vote makes a difference in November, not this Tuesday. And again, that was not President Biden, although it sounded an awful lot like him. Uh, your, your comment on that, Zeev, as far as uh, being able to tell the difference? Uh, it did sound a lot like him. Uh, you know, if I if I had been on the other end of that uh, of that phone call, I don't think I would have been able to tell the difference that it wasn't him. Um, you know, I think this is a challenging moment in the information environment. Um, 
And I think what's what's sort of interesting that we've seen when it comes to deep fakes is actually a lot of the deep fakes that we've seen sort of break through have been audio only. They haven't been video or images. And I think that one of the reasons is because audio is very hard to fact check. You know, if someone wanted to create a fabricated video of Joe Biden, his every move is is watched and recorded. It would be, I mean, you know, while it, there might be a few minutes or a few hours before it becomes fact checked, it is fact checkable. This is much harder. Um, and I would say, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a challenge moving into 2024 with that audio clip, for example. Um, it would have been very easy to make using current technology. You can upload a few minutes of a politician's voice and then create an AI version of, of them saying whatever you want. Um, so, you know, I think that that that, you know, the public should should go out with a healthy um, bit of skepticism, though. I think I'll get back to this later. Uh, not 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 too much skepticism. Well, uh, Ziv, you did say that it was um, that this is being democratized, but how easy is it? to do this now? I mean, could I do it? I mean, what kind of technical background do you need? Um, so, I mean, I think that you probably could do it, though, Mimi, I don't know what your technical background is. Um, you know, I think that these these technologies are, are very accessible. Um, depending on the different company, different companies have different rules around what their technologies can be used for. So certain companies like OpenAI, for example, would expressly prohibit this type of content from being made using using any of their products. Um, but there are a number of products out there. Many of them are very, very good. Um, and, you know, I'd say that they're not quite sort of um, as, as easy as just, you know, uh, a, you know, click and play, but but they're they're getting there. And another part of this, uh, Ziv, would be what uh, some people are calling the liar's dividend. Can you explain that? Yeah, so the liar's dividend, what, what, what that refers to is that in an information environment where there's a lot of anxiety around sort of false or manipulated or fabricated content circulating, what it allows actors to do is claim that something that did happen, that actually did happen, that it didn't happen. And so you could imagine sort of in the context of 2016, the Access Hollywood tape coming out, um, which again is sort of an audio um, uh, clip without video or a photo attached to it. And as we just saw with the Joe Biden clip, it's very easy to make these this sort of audio content. You could imagine sort of Donald Trump having claimed that it was false. And so, and you know, that is is what the liar's dividend is. It, it'll give sort of strategic actors the, the the general context in which to claim something that's true is actually false. Well, let's take a look at a couple of uh, other examples. This first one is an ad put out by the Republican National Committee just after President Biden announced his reelection uh, campaign last year, and it features AI-generated uh, fake images. This just in, we can now call the 2024 presidential race for Joe Biden. This morning, an emboldened China invades Taiwan. Financial markets are in free fall as 500 regional banks have shuttered their doors. Border agents were overrun by a surge of 80,000 illegals yesterday evening. Officials closed the city of San Francisco this morning, citing the escalating crime and fentanyl crisis. Who's in charge here? It feels like the train is coming off the tracks. And Ziv, I mean, that's using AI-generated dystopian images of the future. Do you think that should be allowed? Look, so they're both at the federal level and at the state level. You know, both 
policy, you know, lawmakers and regulators are considering what to do here. You know, I think uh, I want to sort of um, point to some colleagues at UNC, Matt Peralt and Scott um, Brennan, and, and they argue that, that sort of two things, that first, we should really, public policy should target the electoral harms being done, not the technologies that are being used. Like I mentioned, it did sort of democratize access to these technologies, but really well-financed, you know, um, uh, national campaigns would have had access to other sort of, you know, more nascent technologies in order to create fabricated images in, re in previous years if they wanted to. So we should really focus on what the electoral harms that we're nervous about rather than the underlying technologies, given that at this point, you know, the sort of the, the, the cat is out of the bag. And the second is we're, we're still sort of early days here. So a lot of policy, rather than sort of perhaps jumping the gun and focusing on the wrong thing, should, should really focus on promoting sort of learning or new knowledge about these, um, about how sort of generative AI might impact elections and especially political ads. And so there, you know, should be a big focus on transparency. So making sure that any time, you know, generative AI is used, that it's that that viewers at home would know it. Um, but also promoting research to really understand what the effects um, of this sort of content is on, on voters. But when you say transparency, I mean, uh, if you've got some bad actors out there, they're not going to be transparent that they are using deep fakes. Yes, yeah, so they're not going to be transparent that they're using deep fakes. And so, you know, it might put some of the onus on, you know, the, the sort of mechanism by which it's reaching people, whether it's, you know, um, uh, broadcast networks on, you know, on television, um, requiring them to do diligence um, in order to, to potentially apply labels, social media companies applying labels, um, or, you know, I mean, I know at the state level, they've been considering uh, there being, um, uh, you know, certain penalties for, for, for not disclosing. You wrote a piece for Brookings, um, Ziv, that uh, essentially says that uh, AI can be misunderstood and in some cases can be the 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 um, fear of AI can be overhyped. Explain that. Yeah, so I think a lot of a lot of our fear moving into 2024 is specifically around the sort of relationship between AI and misinformation. And so what we do is we start with a review of the literature, you know, the academic literature on, you know, what do we know over the last 10 years about the ways that misinformation has or hasn't directly impacted elections. And by directly, I really mean sort of changed people's votes. Um, and, um, and, you know, we sort of make the argument um, reviewing this literature that actually we've been potentially too concerned about the impact of, of misinformation, that, you know, uh, news didn't, doesn't really make up a majority of people's media consumption. And when it does, people tend to consume high quality media. And that misinformation, when it does exist, tends to be sort of heavily concentrated in the extremes of either party, um, but, but you know, is, it does not tend to reach most Americans. Um, and so for us, rather than saying, you know, using that evidence to argue that AI definitely won't impact 2024, instead we say, what might be different about this moment that we're in? And so we sort of focus on three different ways that AI um, you know, might make misinformation uh, impact or directly impact elections more. Uh, the first is that it could make it more pervasive. There could just be more of it. And there's this very sort of simple math, um, which, you know, uh, misinformation needs to break into the mainstream. And if there's more of it, there's a higher probability that it does. The second is that it could make it more persuasive or more effective, that it could be better targeted 
Uh, you know, there's you know, reports in 2016 of of the Macedonian troll farms. Their their you know um, their tweets were riddled with grammatical errors. And finally, we could have this moment where you know TikTok is this very different social media platform, which really sends content to users who haven't opted into a particular social network. It's not that I have to follow you, Mimi, to get your content, but instead it can just reach me. And so that might, you know, that that dynamic of information diffusion might change, you know, the, the effect of, of, of who or change who misinformation is, is reaching and thus what the effect it has. That was Zeev Sanderson, executive director of NYU Center for Social Media and Politics. Next, a conversation about the Israel-Hamas war the role of Iran's proxy forces, and concerns about a wider conflict in the Mideast, with Hudson Institute's Michael Duran and Benjamin Friedman of the group Defense Priorities. Uh, Mr. Friedman, let's start with you. Uh, we've been at this uh, war with Israel Hamas over 100 days. How would, what's your assessment of it to date? Well, uh, obviously the Israelis uh, set a pretty high bar for themselves in saying they're going to eliminate Hamas, and they haven't achieved that yet. And, uh, you know, they suffered some of their worst casualties uh, of the war the other day, and uh, there's a larger problem from the United States perspective uh, with escalation uh, in uh, Iraq and Syria, where U.S. forces uh, that are stationed there are taking fire. Uh, in the Red Sea where the Houthis in the name of defending Gaza firing at shipping and we're along with uh, the Brits and others are firing uh, at the at Yemen where the, at where the Houthi government is so uh, you know there's a danger I think of escalation potentially uh, even a war with Iran which I think we should be eager to avoid and uh, it's I think uh, high time that the United States pushed harder for a sort of uh, ceasefire, but also a, a different policy in the Middle East that would limit our liabilities and uh, look for the exits. Mr. Duran, same question to you. Uh, I, I think the Israeli war effort has gone steadily uh, forward. Um, uh, it's been relatively successful, but it's a little bit stalled. Um, the in the last uh, in the last month or so, um, the the progress has been harder to show. Um, a lot of that has been because of American policy, because of what uh, the kind of policies that uh, that Ben just uh, recommended, um, that uh, that the Israelis uh, use less force um, uh, and move to uh, this new stage, what the Israelis are calling the third stage of the war, which is uh, one of uh, targeted strikes rather than full spectrum military operations. Um, uh, we need the United States. The U.S. interest is that uh, Israel should win. Uh, win and that means defeating Hamas. Defeating Hamas means that it can no longer pose a threat uh, to the citizens of Israel in the south because the Israelis have to repopulate the south which is now depopulated as a result of these uh, uh, these attacks. With respect to Iran we need to frame this conflict not as a conflict in Gaza but as a conflict uh, between the Iranian uh, resistance axis, as the Iranians call it, and the American alliance system in, in the region. That's what it is. That's how the Iranians have openly, publicly defined it. Um, that's how we need to understand it. Uh, we, shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't weaken our ally in order to appease Iran and its allies. What more should the U.S. be doing then if that's the philosophy that you hold at this point? We, we, we have to deter Iran and its, uh, uh, and its proxies. Um, uh, ben mentioned the, the risk of e escalation. The, the Iranians have been escalating across the board in, 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 in four or five different fronts, depending on how you want to uh, count it. We, we, if we want de-escalation, we have to deter them. 
Uh, Mr. Friedman, this idea of escalation, this idea of uh, Iran and, and targeting that, so what's your thinking on that? One, uh, it's more complicated, I think, than Mike and others uh, make it. That, you know, the Iranians have these proxies, yes, Houthis, Hezbollah, people, uh, different groups in Iraq and Syria, uh, but their degree of control over those groups is different. It, it's limited, I think, particularly in the case of the Houthis. They certainly give them weapons, but it's not at all clear to me that the Houthis are, are acting at the Iranians' behest in terms of what they're doing in the Red Sea, uh, or that you know they, they would if Iran gave them orders. And I think there's a similar uh, but more complex story about the people shooting at U.S. forces uh, in Iraq and Syria. I'd say some of that is, is uh, under the control of the Iranians, and some of it isn't. But I think the larger point is uh, our interests in the Middle East, I think, are uh, would be badly harmed by a war with Iran. I think that's sort of the worst case scenario. You know, I think if we just bomb them, which I think is what Mike uh, might advocate, uh, it's almost certainly going to make things worse in terms of Iranian behavior, in terms of their desire to get nuclear weapons, in terms of their support for these proxy groups. So then you wind up in a situation where you sort of have to go whole hog if you want to get the I don't know, deterrent effects that Mike's talking about, which is a full-on war. And uh, I think that's an awful idea. So I think it's important to keep in mind our interests in Israel's diverge. They're not uh, the same. And uh, I think the United States has a very different interest in terms of Gaza. I think all the death and destruction there, uh, which is largely intentional, uh, is bad for the United States because we're bankrolling it. And uh, I think the, the uh, Israelis would like to see us sort of take on Iran and all its friends on their behalf, and we shouldn't do that. Mr. Duran, this idea of bombing, and this, uh, if that's the policy you're advocating for. I'm advocating for deterring the Iranians. The Iranians are the ones who are, who are carrying out a policy of bombing. They've attacked uh, through their proxies, who are under the direct command and control of the, um, uh, um, of the Iranians. They have, uh, in Iraq and Syria, they have, uh, they have attacked us about 130 times since, uh, since uh, October 7th, some 80 times before that, from the beginning of the, um, of the Biden administration. The United States has not attacked Iran once. It hasn't attacked an Iranian once. Uh, in, in, in Yemen, um, there's Abdul, uh, Abdul Reza Shaklai, uh, who killed Americans in Iraq. He orchestrated the uh, attack on Adel al-Jaber, the Saudi ambassador, here in Washington in, um, uh, in 2011. He kills Americans, he, he orchestrates attacks on American soil. His job now is to provide the Houthis uh, with ballistic missiles, drones, and cruise missiles. Um, wh why have we not targeted him? Th these are, th we, we, have very, uh, we have very, very carefully avoided attacking any Iranian while the, while the Iranians have escalated against us all across the region. I want to play you both a, a clip a couple days ago with John Kirby at the White House. He talked about this idea of escalation, particularly when it comes directly to Iran. It's a short clip, but I'll play it and get your thoughts on it. If the Iranian uh, government is concerned about escalation, then the best thing they could do would be to cut off the support that they give to groups like Hamas and Hezbollah uh, and these Iran-backed militia groups in Iraq and Syria. We don't want to see the uh, conflict escalate. We don't want to see some broader war. We're not looking for a war or a conflict with anybody. We're actually trying to de-escalate. And if the Iranians are serious about that and they want to de-escalate, well, we would welcome them stopping this support. Not looking for a war, not that's, looking to looking to de-escalate. That's a very judicious statement, and it but and it puts the emphasis where it should be on the Iranian escalation that has gone on since October seventh. 
Ms. Fruit. I think the Iranians, uh, have, I mean, they are responsible uh, for giving money to Hamas. I don't think they were involved in planning the October 7th attacks, and they're responsible for funding Hezbollah and uh, giving weapons to the Houthis. That's all true. Uh, but I think they're, they're also operating through proxies because they want to avoid escalation. And right now we're in a sort of happy circumstance in a limited way where the U.S. government and the Iranian government want to avoid a full-on war. And I, I hope it stays that way. Uh, but again, you know, the United States uh, has an interest in not getting pulled into a major war in the Middle East. And uh, we have troops in Syria and Iraq uh, who were there in the first place to defeat ISIS. We defeated ISIS a long time ago, and now they're sticking around kind of uh, uh, taking cover because they're taking fire all the time. It's not clear to me what U.S. interest or uh, objective that serves other than just sort of picking a fight with Iran because we're mad at them. So I think, you know, we should, for starters, get U.S. forces out of those places. Uh, and if we want to have, you know, uh, trouble with Iran, let's do it somewhere else out of range of rockets that, that their proxies uh, possess. Uh, there's reporting by Axios that it was last week that President Biden talked to the Israeli prime minister suggesting or at least urging a scale down of military operations in Gaza, saying, quote, you don't want to be in it for a year of war. Is it too little too late to make these kind of statements? Uh, well, uh, no, it's not too little too late. I mean, you know, there's 25,000 uh, dead people in Gaza and uh, the United States, I think, has sort of attached itself uh, ineffably to the war effort in Gaza by funding uh, the Israelis. So, you know, the reputational harm and so forth is done. But, uh, you know, a ceasefire uh, or reduction in violence there uh, would be welcome, would, uh, you know, uh, limit death and violence there. And I, I just think the, the objective of uh, completely defeating Hamas, as laudable as it is, you know, I'd like to see there be no more Hamas, is not uh, achievable within kind of reasonable time frames or means and, uh, you know, sort of unrealistic. So it's time to sort of make some compromises with that organization as noxious as it is. Uh, same question to you, sir. Uh, uh, my, I think my fundamental uh, disagreement with Ben is that uh, is that he uh, I don't want to put words in his mouth he'll be respond but as I understand the difference between us here um, he seems to think that if the United States restrains itself withdraws troops pulls uh, pulls back further from the Middle East that will stabilize the region and protect American interests and that's not what will happen it's a fundamental misreading of what's going on as I said from the beginning we shouldn't frame this as a war in Gaza. It's not a war in Gaza. Objectively not. There's a, the Hezbollah from Lebanon is firing on Israel. The Houthis are, are firing on Israel and Americans and, uh, and international shipping. Uh, militias in Iraq and Syria are firing directly on, uh, on Americans. This isn't a war for Gaza. This is a war of the Iranian alliance system against the American uh, system. And what Ben is calling for will cede the Middle East to the Iranians, who have no compunction about attacking anybody with their missiles, drones, and ballistic missiles. That is the problem. What do you think of that assessment? Well, they're too weak a country to take over the Middle East. They're not a sort of a potential uh, hegemon. And uh, I think there's a natural uh, balance of power in the Middle East that the United States doesn't have to manage among the major powers there, Israel, Iran, Saudi Arabia, Egypt, Turkey, uh, and that will prevent there from being a major war or one country uh, taking over and dominating the oil or, or something like that. So we have to think about what our interests are 
in the Middle East, not just sort of adopt this sort of managerial role. And even in that regard, look at the last 30 years of U.S. foreign policy in the Middle East, which have been animated by the idea that we can sort of manage its politics by, you know, doing regime change operations uh, and uh, keeping large contingents of forces that are overthrowing, you know, the Iraqi government. It's been a tragic, horrible mistake that has destabilized the region. So in general, I think our posture in the Middle East over the last few decades has been incredibly destabilizing. And I don't think everything's going to be honky-dory if the United States does less, but it will be certainly be better for us uh, and, uh, you, you know, reduce our uh, harm, the harms that are uh, being inflicted on U.S. forces and serve U.S. interests better. That was Benjamin Friedman, Policy Director at Defense Priorities, and Michael Duran, Director of the Center for Peace and Security in the Middle East at the Hudson Institute. Next, we take a deep dive into the bipartisan tax deal negotiated by lawmakers recently with Richard Rubin, who covers tax policy for The Wall Street Journal. A bipartisan effort to give tax breaks to not only businesses, but certain families. How do we get to this point? How do we get to the point of this legislation being considered? This, the core of this deal has actually been out there for more than a year, the idea that Democrats and Republicans could find a way there. And it stems from the things that each side wants. So for Republicans, there are three big business tax breaks that business tax provisions that changed over the course of 22-23, some affecting research deductions for businesses, some affecting capital expense deductions, like if you build a new factory uh, or buy equipment. Uh, And then then third is deductions for interest if you're borrowing and you're a company. And they want to make those go back to the way some of those things were before and make them a little more generous and easy to use for companies. Democrats have been wanting to enhance the child tax credit. Remember, we had the very large expanded child tax credit that was in place during 2021. Uh, it was fully refundable. So up you know, 3,000 per household, 3,600 for young kids, didn't have to have any income to get it. Uh, Democrats wanna go back there. There's an acknowledgement that they are not gonna get all the way there. So they were, the idea was Republicans would get the business tax breaks, Democrats would get something, but not the full 2021 version of the child tax credit. And they would have a meeting of minds and get there. And it, it really, there, was, there were talks in late 2022, and then they resumed again in late 2023. And now, finally, here in early 2024, you've got the Republican chairman of the House Ways and Means Committee, Jason Smith, the Democratic chairman of the Senate Finance Committee, Ron Wyden. They've reached an agreement. The bill has moved through the House Ways and Means Committee already. And now we're waiting to see whether this Congress, which has had difficulty passing significant legislation, as, as we all know, can find a way to get this thing over the finish line. As far as hurdles then they have to cross, what would those be? So procedurally, it's, you know, they've got to get it through the House, and that may happen as soon as next week. Then they've got to get it through the Senate, and then to the president. The White House has signaled its support for the, for the bill as it's currently constituted. In terms of obstacles, there's a number of them out there. You've seen some... Uh, Democrats, again, passed 40 to 3 in Ways and Means. There are three Democrats who voted against it who said that the child tax credit changes didn't go far enough. The bill is unbalanced and gives too much to business. So you may expect to see some of that on the House floor and and in the Senate. I think you've also got some Republicans who have raised concerns about the child tax credit, who say it goes too far in in the sense of providing uh, benefits to people who in households where they're not working or not working a lot. And so there's concern about work incentives, and we can talk more about that. Um, And then there's some concern about the big picture, because all this bill does is kind of set this up through 2025. So it goes retroactively and then forward for 
businesses through 2025, same thing for the child tax credit, 23, 24, 25. And then what happens after that? And so it, it leaves all that open. But there's concerns, of course, that if you have tax breaks that are set to expire at the end of 2025, when we already have trillions of dollars of tax breaks that are scheduled to expire, then that there are deficit and other concerns about what will happen when the next Congress gets to that. Uh, if you would, explain some things as far as these aspects of the le legislation when it comes to the child credit. Uh, it would do, first of all, modify the calculation of the refundable credit. Right. So right now the credit is $2,000 and it increases as income goes up. You have to have at least $2,500 in earnings to qualify for the credit. So very, very low income families can't get it. That doesn't change at all in this. But currently, it's, it, it phases in on a per-child basis. So if you have two children, it takes you, you need more income to get to the full credit. If you get uh, now, under this proposal, you would be able to be phasing in for multiple children at one time. So it's a faster phase in if you have, uh, for multi-child family. The other thing that it does, it increases the maximum amount that's refund, what we call refundable, so that you can get back even if you don't owe income taxes. Right now for 2023, I think that's 1,600 of the 2,000 you can get back. So if you have, um, if you qualify for the maximum credit, you can only get back 1,600 if you're not paying income taxes. This would gradually move that even faster toward the full 2,000. And then the third thing it does to the child tax credit is it indexes the $2,000 credit to inflation starting in 2025, where it's likely to be 2,100 for that year. Um, if you recall, in 2017, Congress doubled the child tax credit as part of the uh, tax law that President Trump signed, but they didn't set that $2,000 credit to index for inflation as a lot of uh, pieces of the tax code are. So it's an open question about what will happen to that. And so this kind of move, starts moving that credit upward where it's been static and lost some of its value from 2017 to now. On the business, well, before we go to the business, the child tax credit, exactly what is it? How does it work? Right, so the child tax credit is a up to $2,000 per child that, that you get on your tax credit. And remember, this is a credit, not a deduction, so it reduces your tax bill, doesn't reduce the amount of income you're reporting. So it's a $2,000 credit is more valuable than a $2,000 deduction. The idea of it is really to provide a benefit to households who are raising children is a recognition of the cost of raising children. So it's a pretty broadly supported benefit. Um, it is, it goes up pretty relatively far up the income scale. You can get the full credit if you have, if you're an individual with income of 200,000 uh, or a married couple with up to 400,000 after that it phases out. And so it, it is a, a broadly enjoyed benefit that has had bipartisan support over the years. Democrats, I think, want to make it, clearly want to make it more, more of like a, a universal child allowance concept where everybody, you get it no matter what. They had, you know, their monthly payments in 2021. They like that structure where you're, you know, providing income support to families to reduce child poverty over the course of the year as opposed to uh, these sort of lump sum payments that people get as part of their tax refund. Um, but that's the basic idea of the, of the child tax credit. That was Richard Rubin, tax policy reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website at cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern Time.